For many decades, popular culture suggested that robots can help us around the home. Those of a certain vintage might remember Metal Mickey from the early 1980s, or even Rosie from the Jetsons 20 years earlier. Yet while Alexa and other smart speakers powered by artificial intelligence are now commonplace in our homes, those domestic robots we were promised have never quite materialised. But are they now just around the corner? And as well as doing chores, can they help spot danger signs and help the next generation of older people stay in their homes for longer, or age in place as it's often called? I'm David Lee and welcome to the latest episode of Data Capital, the podcast series brought to you by the Scotsman and the Data Driven Innovation Initiative, part of the Edinburgh and South East Scotland City Region deal. Today, we're in the outskirts of Edinburgh at the Heriot Watt University campus, where the National Robotarium is due to open in early 2022. Heriot Watt's already a leading global centre for robotics, and in its living lab, experts are already starting to see how robots might help people to age in place. As Professor Lynn Bailey, one of those experts in human-robotic interaction, explains. So I'll give an example is you can even get as simple as a Roomba robot which can go around and hoover your floors, you know, rather than you having to do it. That's a really basic level task. Um, and then you can get the more complicated ones where it can potentially we're looking at, you know, bring you various things like coffee or, you know, milk or whatever, something from the fridge. Um, so there's, you know, collect, go answer the door for you to get packages from Amazon, you know, really straightforward things like that, but things that, you know, actually could really help you. Um, it can also give you pre advanced warning that say, a, you know, a care workers coming around to visit. It can show you a picture of the care worker. So you know what they're going to look like when they arrive. So you're not nervous about answering the door. Um, because you already know, oh, yeah, that my robot's already told me, here's a picture of the person. I know they're coming. I know what they look like. I'm now happy to answer the door, um, for that person. So it's really simple, straightforward tasks, but it can help someone stay in their own home rather than having to go into a care home. But what about security? How can you be sure it's the delivery driver at your door? And how does the driver know they're at the right address? That's been a big problem throughout lockdown, as we all well know. So, yes, I mean, I think the thing is what can happen is you could, your your face could appear on a tablet, you know, by video link on the robot. So the delivery driver sees, sees your head on this tablet on the robot and can interact with you via that. Or, you know, the robot can be sent information, say, from Ocado or whoever or Amazon in advance. And then they could just need to show a QR code, which the uh, robot can scan and then accept the parcel from you. They've got confirmation that you've got the parcel and you've got your parcel and you know that it's yours. Lynn explains how the Living Lab at Heriot University can recreate real-life situations and see whether these human-robot interactions will actually work. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the things we're looking at with the National Robotarium. That's why we were so keen, part of the National Robotarium, is we have an assistive living lab, and it's actually its own. You can enter it from the main entrance, but there's also a door which goes directly to the outside, so it is a self-contained apartment, and it has full disabled access, and it also has a path straight to the the road. So what we can do is we can actually enact these things and test them out in a very safe and secure environment where we actually have delivery drivers, might might shock some of them if we <laughs> don't let them know in advance, they can actually, we will be having deliveries to that apartment. So we will actually be testing it out with all sorts of different end users uh, to see that actually happen in real life. Um, so this is the kitchen to curb concept where the robot can collect it and the parcel from the delivery person and put it onto your kitchen table for you. 
Um, so we are testing all those things. Um, also, another thing that we're testing is things like a robot reminding people different steps and how to make a cup of tea or a coffee, for example. Um, one of the things that you want to enable people to do is not always do it for them, but to remind them of steps that enable them to do it for themselves. So they, you know, keep that um, cognitive decline not happening as quickly, because the thing is, if you're doing it for them, that's not enabling people to remember how to do it for themselves. This is a sensitive area. And Lynn says that while robotics and sensors can really help identify changes in behaviour, people's privacy has to be a prime consideration too. One of the things we do know is, for example, different patterns um, of behaviour. Um, so basically, if someone is behaving in a different way than they would before, getting up in the middle of the night, having unusual activity patterns. So most people get up between that time, go to bed during that time, and we're pretty much sort of creatures of a certain level of habit. And um, we don't tend to stray very far out with those parameters. So we can pick up if people are, for example, getting up at a strange time or not getting up. Um, we can also do things like, you know, put some lightweight sensors on cabinet doors, on, you know, um, next to ovens, and we can see through a heat sensor, okay, the person's not heating up food anymore. Might there be an issue there? They're not opening their, you know, cabinets and making, getting food out like we would expect. This is actually, it sounds quite invasive, but it's seeing have you opened a cupboard, not what have you eaten. So it's, you know, that you've heated up something, not what it is you've heated up. So just to say that we're very, very conscious of privacy um, within this environment. And one of the reasons why we're quite in, very interested in this as well and privacy issues is we, we think cameras are very invasive, for example. So really cameras should only be used if you absolutely need to use them within the home environment. They shouldn't be something that is always on and always filming you know, someone in their own home. We very much feel that by putting robots and other sensing devices there, we can actually stop that level of invasion of privacy, potentially. But in practice, how do you ensure that people are comfortable that the use of robots, sensors and data does not compromise their privacy? We actually talk a lot to the to people themselves about what they want in their own homes, what are their com comfort zones when it comes to the use of technology. Um, also, we talk to Alzheimer's Scotland, Alzheimer's UK. We speak to various charities and NGOs like Chest Heart Stroke Scotland. Um, we also talk to um, allied health professionals, so um, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, people who are actually trying to deliver to housing associations, I should say as well. You know, actually, housing associations are very, very supportive because they really want to keep Older people are people, so people who have been their tenants for years, they want to keep them there, they want to keep them happy, they want to support them, to enable them to stay in their own homes, and they really have a very proactive approach, house and associations. Professor Bailey's colleague, Dr Mauro Dragoni, stresses the vital importance of partnership working to solve problems using robotics so they can make a genuine difference to people's lives. So we want to be successful in bringing innovation to the social care and support sector, we need to follow the research concept of a user-centered living laboratory. And this is exactly what Eriotuote University is doing and what is especially doing with the National Robotarium. All our collaborators include NHS Lothian and the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland. 
and organizations such as the Scottish Care, the Coalition of Care and Support Providers in Scotland, and Site Scotland, in addition to a number of care and support providers and housing associations. The type of robot needed depends on the task in hand, which can also include vital work in hospital settings, explains Dr Dragoni. So we are looking at the whole range from socially assistive robots to to more capable robots, robots that are able to sanitize environment, to work 24-7 in a hospital setting, for example, by uh, looking at situations that need uh, their assistance and uh, ways to, that they can work with carers in order to provide better support to, to people, uh, um, to patients and to people supported. And uh, so the, the environment needs to be as realistic as possible also because uh, Part of our job is inviting people inside this laboratory to experience what will be life with this technology. And we want to, we need to do that in a, in a realistic environment. We don't want users to step into a laboratory. We want, have, we want to give them the impression that they are actually stepping in, in their home and what their home will look like in the future. Another benefit of the Living Lab approach is being able to test what works and to do it in a very realistic but safe and controlled way, Lynn Bailey explains. One of the things is, of course, they want to be cautious with their costs and make sure that that's technology that's worth adopting because there's been a lot of kind of, you know, missteps with tele um, care before. And that's why we want somewhere like the National Robotarium with an apartment like that. So one of our steps is we'll start testing and doing experiments and research in you know very controlled environment which is even though it's an assistive living lab it's very controlled and we can manipulate all the different um, parts of the experiment that we want and we can test everything out and it's very safe the next thing we normally do is then go to an empty apartment which is a real one of a house and association for example and we next test in one which someone isn't living in, but it's exactly the same apartment as one that someone is living in in the same block, for example. We did that with the North Glasgow Homes before. And then we go on to test it for a short you know, burst of time with actual end users, with actual people who would be using it. So it's very methodical, very thought out, very phased has ha- approach that we have to actually doing this work. During lockdown, the work of the Living Lab did not stop as technology was employed to continue this vital research. In summer 2020, Harriet Watt experts launched what they believe is the world's first open and remote access Living Lab to research and create solutions for what is called ambient assisted living, known as Open AAL. Mauro Dragoni again. What that means is that now partners all around the world can log in to our uh, portal and uh, have access uh, to the robots in this environment so they can run their test and test their program in this uh, environment. They can also have access to our smart home. So we routinely, uh, for example, uh, collect data from emerging sensing technologies that uh, more often need to be developed together with the robotic solution. And uh, Partners have access to these to these technology, which means that we can we can work out different components in different in different places, and it also means that we have better ways to bring potential users of technology virtually at least inside our laboratory. 
Ultimately, though, Dr. Dragoni stresses, the technology is only there to support human beings to live better, sometimes by helping their carers to care for them more effectively. The human is in the loop. The carer is, uh, is the one controlling the robot. The robot is, uh, is uh, the vehicle um, providing uh, the ability for the carer to navigate the environment of the, of the person that uh, they need to support performing some of the social interaction, but the robot there is a clear, clearly a tool in the hand of a human who is using it to provide the, the, the level of uh, human care that we, we expect. So will it happen? Will we start seeing robots helping us around the homes? And is it perhaps becoming easier to use robotics and sensors and the Internet of Things in people's homes as a new generation of silver surfers grows old? People who are comfortable with all manner of technology. I think one of the things that I've definitely seen in my time um, building technology, you know, for rehabilitation, and um, which goes for younger to older people, but is predominantly older people. One of the things I've done is stroke um, after knee replacement surgery. I've really started to see a change. The the people who are retiring now are not the kind of people who were retiring 10, 15 years ago. Their level of technology uh, usage and knowledge is much, much higher because those are people who have actually been using computers a lot of the time, especially if they were professionals, since the 1980s. Now, so actually, a lot of them, um, even even 2010 when I was doing studies, a lot of them were quite okay with video conferencing, with Skype and so on. They've now moved on to other types of video conferencing. Um which has become very prevalent, unfortunately, due to COVID. We definitely have seen a shift, um, especially amongst the people who are now in the 60s, early 70s. They are much, much more accepting of technology. But it's got to have one of the things that's maybe different from that age group and older compared to younger age group is they, they want to see a value. They have a more utilitarian take on technology. So it's like, I'm only going to adopt this and if there's something in it that will benefit me. So in what other ways might we see robots coming into our homes and showing clear and practical benefits? A lot are starting to get to use, you know, the grass cutting robots and the, the like I said, the hoovering robots. So, you know, as they see like, oh, this is a chore that can be taken that I don't want to do, you know, um, they can certainly see the benefits of it. And I think that's a good way and a not tech heavy way to start introducing people to that type of technology. Lynn Bailey also explains how the Miro robot, a cross between a dog and a rabbit, was used as part of an experiment on social distancing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, we did a really interesting project with that. Um, one of the things that we wanted to investigate, it was just a small project because it was happened because COVID and there was a lot of um, mention that, and it was especially important to older people because of the social distancing, that people weren't allowed to visit people in their own homes. And I know that affected everybody, not just older people, but that was a, a major thing that because people weren't socially distancing in their own homes, this was kind of banned, as we know, for a while that you shouldn't shouldn't do that. Um, and so basically what we looked at with the Miro is the Miro is a cross between a dog and a rabbit. So one of the things was we thought it wouldn't look too invasive in people's home. It wouldn't be... It, We'd almost go uncommented, if you like. Um, but one of the things the Miro can do is it can actually, um, it has computer vision, so it can calculate whether people are actually at the one, I think it was one meter, 1.5 meter, whatever the guidance was, we followed the Scottish guidance. And it could measure 
if two two one two people are in the shot, um, the mirror can see, and then they're standing too close. They're not the one meter apart. It would then issue different warnings, and one of the things what you see was which warning do people obey, if you like, the most. So one would they even do what the what the mirror robot asked them to do? Would it actually would they actually move apart? Um, the second thing was which which warning, which notification would work the best, you know, because obviously what you want is people to comply with the social distancing. And so which one would they actually um, do within their own home? And also, of course, we wanted to see if it was acceptable in, in the home. So we actually chose two different households. It didn't include an older household. Um, that was even more problematic just because they were the most at risk group um, for COVID at that time. So... Basically, we got student halls because we wondered if the students would comply. Um, so they share um, a kitchen, living room space, um, but they have their own bedrooms um, and bathrooms. Um, and we also chose a family home, which had children, um, to see how, how acceptable it would be to a family. Um, and we put it into their homes for a week. In fact, eight days, and we saw how well they did or didn't and which notification worked. And we got the notification that we thought would work the best wrong. We thought the siren would work the best because that's really annoying. And this, the siren would keep going off um, every 15 seconds if people didn't move apart. So we thought that's really going to annoy people. Um, another one was it could light up. The sensors on its back can light up. Um, another one was that you had to go up and clap the mural as if it was a, a dog because it's a cross between a dog and a rabbit. You had to kind of pet it and then it would stop reminding you. Um, and another one was it, the mural saying, please stand, you're, you're standing too close. You need to stand further apart with social distancing rules. And um, actually the one that was most complied with was the ones where it was verbal. And we got quite high compliance. We got um, 77% compliance with the notifications, which is really, really high. So we were quite interested as to why people would comply with the robot, especially. We did get slightly lower in the student accommodation, I should say, but we still got very high compliance, still around 60%. So that's that's really good within student halls. We asked them why, and they said it was because they felt the robot was independent. It was It was being scientific and precise. It wasn't someone's subjective opinion. Um, so, and they said actually they felt more comfortable the robot saying it than they would to like another person within their household or another person who was visiting. Cause this was really aimed at if we could have visitors, not so much, you know, if it was you in your own home, but actually if you had visitors and they actually said they would feel more comfortable because the robot's, you know, independent and is not biased in any way as to its opinion. So how useful, important are these experiments? I think it's really important to do these types of especially more long-term um, experiments. One I did previously with rehabilitation actually took place over three months. And so a lot of these issues, um, especially around rehabilitation, it's not a short-term fix. It's not a, you know, will this work for a day or for an hour at a time? It's will this work over weeks and months? Um, and I think the only way you're going to really know that is if you actually undertake that level of study. Um, whereas if you just do what we normally do, um, which or have done in the past, is we get someone into lab, they try it for an hour, that's, that's all we do, um, and then that's verified. So a lot of testing is just, and experiments are just very short. And I think as we move more into being more invasive, if you like, in people's life and more into the assisted living, um, 
then we actually will need to do much, much longer experiments than we've been used to in the past. And that's quite an adjustment for people in computer science and because that's something that we just haven't had to do before. So how close are we to robots being there in our homes, helping us to age in place? I think at the moment, um, with a lot of robotics, it's very, very experimental. We're still at the stage where we're dealing with um, hardware and software, which isn't as robust and reliable as you would like it. So that's one of the issues. We were very safety conscious. We don't want to put something into someone's home, especially if they're vulnerable adult, for example, if it isn't robust and reliable. Um, so that's one of the issues we need to get overcome a lot of technical issues when it comes to robots. Um, we also need to look at very much trust and ethical issues as well within. And I know, um, one of my colleagues was looking at that within the National Robotarium. So there's, there's lots of work to be done. Um, and that's why having a National Robotarium is so important is we need to make sure the hardware is robust, the software is robust, it's, it's built with privacy, um, designed in from the start, that we've done a lot of, you know, testing to make sure that this is going to work extremely well with the end users it's intended to work with. So there's a lot of work still to be done. Unfortunately, robots aren't at the point where you can just let them run loose, if you like. That's that's a bit of time away, <laughs> unless it's a very, very limited robot like one that's a Roomba, which only does one specific thing, but very well. And how will these robots work with other technology in the home? I think robots along with other technology. I mean, one of the things that's really good about robots that, you know, other sensors and so on don't have is robots have agency, what they call agency. So it can be proactive. So if, sen if it's sensing something is changing, it can do an action on that. And so that's really important. But how do we design that? How do we make sure that that's not cutting the human out of the loop, if you like? So there's a lot of work around that of how we can actually enable a robot to have the right level of agency to make sure that it's helping someone just enough, but not too much. It's not taking over. We don't want the robots to take over. We want the robots to assist and to work in cooperation. So it's very much about cooperation between humans and robots. And that's my particular area as human-robot interaction is to make sure how can we design that really, really well so it is a cooperative situation which enables the robot to support someone to stay in their own homes because I mean that's very clear from any study you see from older people they want to stay in their own homes they don't want to go in care homes if they can possibly avoid it. Final question are people ready for robots to help them around the home and to help them age in place? I don't think they are. And I think we need to communicate more. We need to talk to people more. One of the pro one of the issues which we went out of our way of designing the whole Robotarium is we've got so many places where people can come in and they can interact with these robots. Because one of the things we're very aware of is we kept the robots locked behind kind of lab doors and we've not let people come in and interact with them and really see what the possibilities are and so one of the things the national Robotarium is we're really going to is bring in people and you know we've designed the whole national Robotarium so that it's got that built in those spaces for people to come together and really interact with robots and really see what what they can do and how you know come up with other ideas about how we can you know design these in the future and work on them and make them work better as cooperative um technology with human beings so the robots are coming Perhaps not just yet, but the opening of the new National Robotarium at the Heriawatt campus next spring 
will allow much more work to be done on the practical impacts of more robotic technology in our homes to help us age in place. Thanks to Professor Lynn Bailey and to Dr. Mauro Dragoni. And thanks for listening to the latest in the series, Data Capital, brought to you by the Scotsman and the Data Driven Innovation Initiative, part of the Edinburgh and South East Scotland City Region deal. Listen out for previous episodes in the series. You can find them on all the main podcast platforms and please give us your feedback. Data Capital is presented by me, David Lee, and is produced by Kelly Crichton.